This is exactly right. It's 1943 in the Kingdom of Bulgaria. As the Second World War rages, King Boris dies suddenly and every nation is a suspect. The Butterfly King premieres March the 21st on Exactly Right. It's a cruel tale of a doomed royal dynasty. Somewhere, the truth is out there. Listen to The Butterfly King on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome. To my favorite murder. It's a podcast. Where'd Karen go? Did you hear that? Was it a verb? Did you hear it? <laughs> Leave it. Did you hit your teeth on the microphone? No. no, I did a weird inhale forward slash suck in some kind of a... It's not like there's snot in... There was a sucking noise. Saliva sound. I keep stuff up there. Saline solutions tucked up from so the sea. Cotton balls. You never know when you need... Nail polish remover. Mm-hmm. And, a, and an emery board. Just shoved up into my navel, nasal navel cavity. Jesus. That's wow. George Hartstark. definitely Karen Kilgariff. <laughs> And we are having a hell of a time here in Southern California. Here in Southern California. We can blame it on the Santa Ana winds that came today. That's right. There were crazy winds yeah. last night. And it makes everything a little spooky. And a little one hour and 15 minutes late. <laughs> <laughs> oh, guys, I just pulled one. No, everything is good. We're here. We have our sparkling waters. Um, and our Stephen is to our right and left, yep. which is great for us. Yeah. Stephen is all around Stephen us. kind of, yeah, he's an omnipresent right, left, all, all around. You keep dipping out this episode. Something's <laughs> happening with my, what I like to call my instrument. <laughs> I'm like the instrument. I'm like a trumpet that a seventh grade boy plays where there's so much spit. Oh, the smell. Did you not do your podcasting warm ups? I didn't do my podcast neti pot. I didn't. (laughs) I didn't rinse all orifices. Ew. My fault. Yeah. You got to do them. Them podcast warm ups that everyone knows so well. Me, 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 me. Well, me, 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 (laughs) me, me, me is actually the perfect podcast warm up. Yeah. I think because me, I me, feel me, 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 me. What's okay. wrong with you? Oh, mm. I'm almost done with dry January. Yes. I, t- I have two days of non dry January. Okay. But didn't. You dipped out of j- dry January. Yeah. Two days, two different days, not two days in a row. Great. Um, you know, dealing with that, but it, it's fine. Now, was it a binge? Like, did you end up down <laughs> by the LA river? No, unfortunately, nothing's on. I had two glasses of wine with you last night. Yeah. The Tam O'Shanter. That was pretty great. And your dad. We partied. And Jim was there. Jim was there. <laughs> and then one other night that I had an event. It was both around like things. Yeah. And it just feels better to be drinking at them because I hate it's so hard to talk to people. 100%. But, you know, I didn't feel great about it and I felt like shit the next day. So yeah. it's, you know, teaching me that it's not something I really want in my life. Well, good. And I would say it also brings that, you know, what I found when I was drinking is that my tolerance for my hangover yeah. was out of I could, I could destroy my body and be like, it's fine. I'll have a bagel. I'll be fine later. Totally. And I think once then you cut it out and then when you come back, it's like two glasses of wine and you feel it. I told, yeah, exactly. 
exactly. And I feel like I've been ignoring it and I've been thinking that's my normal every day. Like I just am tired all the time and have like a low level flu. When yes. really it's like, no, you've just been drinking all the time. Yeah. And it's ruining your body. Right. Yeah, I feel so much better. Awesome. So you're gonna you're you're gonna round out dry January? I'm just gonna keep going. Good. As I was going, you know, drinks here and there when it when it calls for it. Right. Yeah. But for most but mostly. I mean, I think that's the way to do it too, is like it's whatever you're trying to do, it's your business, first of all. Yeah. It's like how you want to do it is your journey. Yeah. If I may. Thank you. Thank you. I've been waiting all month for you to tell me that this is a journey. It's a journey and it's your journey. <laughs> yeah. So me, 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 me. It's a it's a difficult thing, as we everyone knows, with anything that you we all have our things yeah. and that we use. Yeah. And to just put them down. Yeah. Very difficult. I mean, it's taken me five years to take a month minus two days off. So right. it's, you know. So you're actually numbers wise. Mm -hmm. That's uh, I think that's a solid A. Thank you. Numbers wise. Okay. I'm, yeah, you know, I'm just, a a, I'm a numbers person. I'm a math person. A, A minus. Yeah. I, I never got those grades in high school. Right. So this is great. So welcome to the fucking honor society, Thank bitch. Thank you. Do I get $5? Is it $5 <laughs> for every A? Um, yes. So I'll give you $10. Okay. And that's incentive. Thank you. And that goes to my next drink. That goes to. But <laughs> 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 he just gave me money for alcohol. And then Karen? you start buying super cheap alcohol so you can get more for yeah. less. If it's only fireball, fireball. <laughs> Just get a thing of fireball. Okay, Good. moving on to Great. the news portion. <laughs> oh, I have some um, news Great. Let's about hear it. it's a stay sexy event. So this tattoo parlor called Witch of the Woods Tattoo. They're in Missoula. Montana. Thank you. <laughs> That's where Chris uh, Fairbanks is from. Oh, right. It's the only reason I know. So they're doing a, uh, t a, t a tattooing event <gasps> where there's going to be a bunch of My Favorite Murder Flash Tattoo by a bunch of different tattoo artists. It, does Flash Tattoo mean they do it as fast as they can? No, it means you're like, I want you pick off the wall. That's oh, great. flash art. It's not like you have, this is my mother's signature type of shit. No, no, no. I, I think that's right. I'm not a tattoo artist anymore, so I wouldn't know, but. Come, please come back okay. to the fold. So they're, so Witch of the Woods Tattoo on February 5th is doing, um, a tattooing nails tarot card like event and the money that they make is going to go to Make Your Move, uh, Missoula, which, and Make Your Move is a, um, nonprofit that does stuff like consent education and sexual violence prevention. So nice. I think that's really awesome. Beautiful. Love it. That's very cool. Thanks, yeah. you guys. Thanks. It's Witch of the Woods is the name of the tattoo parlor. That's right. And you can find them on Instagram. I feel like excited to be associated with any business called the Witch of the Woods. Yeah, that's I'm right. absolutely down. One of us. <laughs> I'm also a witch in the woods. That's right. Use, use your hashtag MFM tattoo, everyone, because that's how we see your tattoos. Oh, and then we can see we can see the the results yeah. of the event. Yeah, we can post them. That's very cool. Well, the thing I was going to mention is we we talked last week about how fascinating snow is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all that we got so made fun of for people in the Midwest and and other snowy areas. There was somebody that wrote in. I can't find it right now, but somebody just wrote. I don't even. I've never even seen an ice pick. Yeah. Like, what are you talking? I live in about? the snow, and I've never <laughs> even looked at an ice pick before. <laughs> it's so funny. And then apparently in Newf Newfoundland there was or St. John's there was a blizzard where I saw this sped up footage um, that was like from a nest cam, uh -huh. and you just watch the snow go all the way up to the to the like overhang roof no. of this porch. Uh, 
it it looked like they had 10 feet of snow. It was crazy. And so uh-huh. apparently this blizzard, people were like snowboarding and skiing in the street. Cool. And like it turned into like fun times because no one could do anything. Yeah. We got, we got a lot of pictures sent about that. Thanks, guys. It was really nice. You know, educate us about snow. Because <laughs> we need <laughs> to. Dumb Southern California girls. I'm kind of heartbroken that they killed off Mr. Peanut. Uh, <laughs> that's sad, but that's my personal. I told you <laughs> that, that the story. murder you're doing this yeah. week? I'm covering. <laughs> the, it. Everyone's saying that the advertising company did it like for a promotion. It was a murder. Oh. And I'm here to tell you about it. Tell me. Okay. So this person with a peanut allergy (laughs) no sorry in crossover news yeah oh yeah we are going to be on um murder squad next week yeah february 3rd yeah Yeah. talking about what did we talk about the staircase that's right (laughs) god that was good that was really fun paul holes talks a lot in it and he's great you know the thing about paul holes is he knows what he's talking about and being around that is really nice it's really that was not passive aggression toward you but no. <laughs> oh, fuck you. Yes, it was. No, I think it was. No. <laughs> uh, but what I, but at one point he says a thing that I think is like an Easter egg worth listening to. So you can just hear it for yourself. Yeah. I don't want to spoiler it. Yeah. That it has the ability to reignite the hot for holes movement mm-hmm. because he is the real deal. Yes. Um, it was really cool just to be able to be like, speculation, speculation, speculation. What do you think, Paul Holes? And then get the answer to it. Yes. Not more speculation. Not more speculation. It's like, here's science and and experience. And and how the law works. Goodbye. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and goodbye. Look, nothing against uh, Billy Johnson. He's a gem as well. Billy Johnson's holding it all down. Billy right. Johnson is, provides the stage for which Paul Holes can then come in. And hold it down on his own. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, yeah, it was really fun. It was it's great. A good episode. If you sh- should check it out, Murder Squad. Murder Squad. They know what they're doing over there. <laughs> That's the tagline. Murder Squad. <laughs> they know what they're doing. They know over what they're doing over there <laughs> on Mondays. <laughs> Gestures randomly. Um, <laughs> Points to the wall. Are we? Are we first or are they first? I think it's we. Mm. <laughs> Do you mean you as we? No. <laughs> When you say they, do you mean you? No. I think it's you this week. Is it me? Okay. Steven says, yes, it's me this week. That goes so it first. is we. It is, so it is they. It's the royal eye. <laughs> Are we okay? <laughs> is there a gas leak in this office is the question. Guys, it's been quite a day. It sure has. Georgia, is there anything scarier than trying to log into an account and it tells you that your password is incorrect. And then you try again and it's the same thing. And after a few more failed attempts, big red letters appear saying you've been locked out and your account is suspended. That happens to me all the time, Karen. But scary password stories can have happy endings if you give 1Password a try. 1Password is a user-friendly password management system. It's trusted by consumers, families, small businesses, and large-scale enterprises. If you're tired of being the family member everyone texts for a streaming login or the unofficial keeper of all those shared work credentials, it's time for you to pass the torch to 1Password. They allow for secure login sharing. With 1Password, you can securely store more than just passwords, autofill everything from usernames to payment 
payment details and personal info. They'll also notify you about potential data breaches. 1Password saves everyone time. And in many cases, that save time equals money saved. The accounting department will thank you. Don't just listen to us. I mean, you should, but don't just do that. The Associated Press uses 1Password to secure their sensitive information in high-risk areas. Right now, our listeners can get a two-week free trial at onepassword.com slash MFM. That's two free weeks at one, as in the number one, password.com slash MFM. Onepassword.com slash MFM. Goodbye. Uh, tell me a story, Georgia. Let me tell you a story. Let me tell you two stories. Okay. I mean, I guess I have the time. <laughs> it's short, but oh. I mean, it's two stories of wrongful conviction. Nice. Okay. Yes. And high time. And about fucking time. Yeah. This first one is the story of the Fairbanks Four. Ooh, Alaska? Uh-huh. Or no, Chris Fairbanks. Chris Fairbanks. <laughs> <laughs> so this one's kind of um, still ongoing and wrapping up right now, and I've been seeing a lot of news about it, so I thought, like, let's get into it. Yes. And I got information from the National Registry of Exonerations, the Pacific Standard website, article by Elizabeth Fairfield Stokes, a Newsweek article by Josh Sal, and a Daily Beast article by Kate Brick. Bricolette. At 2.50 in the morning on October 11th, 1997, in Fairbanks, Alaska, a passerby notices a body that's lying half on the sidewalk, half in the street, unconscious, and he calls 911. Uh, brutally beaten and unconscious, as I just said. A local news station shows the, f- the victim's badly beaten face on a broadcast because they don't know who it is and they need to identify him. Okay. And two of this person's closest friends freak out when they recognize that th- it's their friend. Um, it's 15-year-old John Hartman, a well-liked high school student oh. in, from Fairbanks. John dies later that day at the Fairbanks Memorial Hospital. Horrible. Yeah. So the night of um, John Hartman's fatal attack, a wedding is happening in town. 17-year-old Eugene Vent, who had been partying at their wedding reception earlier that night, is the first suspect to be picked up. Um, and he, it's because the wedding after party was broken up by police and he's brought in for questioning after a witness at the party said that he saw Vent with a gun, which is a fact that's later uh, he's later tried and acquitted for. Okay. So it's not even true. Okay. When he's brought in for questioning, Vent's blood alcohol level is 0.158%, which is twice Alaska's legal limit. Yeah. And he waives his right to speak to an attorney or his mother. Because he's, he's, he's drunk. Because he's drunk. How yeah. drunk is that? Like, So what's our legal limit here? It, 0.08. So how, how many drinks is that about? Do you know? Uh, I would say he maybe had a six pack. That was that's my unprofessional okay. but yet alcoholic guess. Okay. One I think one five something is pretty high. Yeah, that's high. It's high. Yeah. Utilizing the read technique, which is a now discredited interrogation approach Uh-oh. that has been proven to lead to false confessions, especially when it's used on minors. Detective Aaron Ring aggressively interrogates the young man for hours before he finally caves and names his high school basketball teammates from before and school friends as his accomplices. So it's Eugene Vent that who was uh, who's admitting to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As well as Kevin Pease, who's 19, George Freese, who's 21 and 19 year old Marvin Roberts. Okay. And they become known as the Fairbanks Four. Okay. 
So George Freese had visited the um, emergency room for foot pain the day after the murder, telling the doctor that he had drunkenly kicked someone the night before but can't remember much else. That's the problem with when you party yeah. and then something bad happens and people go, oh, you may have done it. Yeah. We're just like, yeah, you could have. Well, you can un- you can understand why those dots would be connected. Sure. You know, so investigators take Freese's boot, which authorities later present as evidence. Meanwhile, authorities tell Marvin Roberts that his car's tire match skid marks left near the scene and they play a recording event statement implicating him in the, in the crime. Mm. So they're like, someone already admitted that you did this. Roberts is the high school valedictorian and he insists on his innocence and repeats over and over again that he wasn't even there. Still, police had their motive. It was a group of friends on a joyride and it was a robbery gone wrong. Mm. The murder of Hartman and the resulting investigation and trial totally divides the town of Fairbanks. Hartman was white and the Fairbanks for our indigenous peoples identifying culturally as Athabascan. Fairbanks already has racial tensions due to the Alaskan native peoples being forced to adjust and assimilate during decades of an influx of white people. Yeah. Having no actual physical evidence against the Fairbanks for police and prosecutors, they fabricate yeah. a boot impression and show that it matches the marks on Hartman's bruised body. Sorry, what year is this? 91. Jesus. Nope. No, sorry. 97. Oh, my God. Like, too recent. Yeah, I, you know? I, I really wanted you to say 70. Yeah, I know. Sorry. That sucks. So um, And happens a lot. Yeah. So they, sh- they, in an affidavit, a forensic expert calls the state's exhibit extremely misleading and a misrepresentation. Mm. But the second key piece of evidence is a supposed eyewitness who, despite having been drinking for hours that day, smoking pot, snorting coke... Um, the night of the murders, he testifies that he saw the four defendants attack the victim. And in court, he admits he couldn't see the suspect's faces since he was 550 feet away. Oh, my God. Right? That's very far. It's quite far. How many beers is that far away? That's like 16 beers away. Yeah. But he identifies them through their profiles and haircuts. (laughs) Yeah, dude. No. No. Uh, meanwhile, Marvin Roberts has an airtight alibi. Several people who are credible witnesses testify that they saw him at that wedding um, on the dance floor or giving people rides home around the time of Hartman's attack. Instead, the prosecutor claims that um, the Alaskan natives are lying for each other. And that he compares them to the slaves conspiring against their owners in the film Spartacus. Oh, my God. Can you fucking believe that? Uh, how in your honor, uh, your honor, I object to this intense disrespect. It's just insulting to those witnesses who are coming forward to defend. Well, and also this is all going on record. Yeah. Like this. I feel like that's a thing maybe that's coming, that's becoming more real now because the digital age, everything Uh is permanent and everything's public and everything's, um, online or whatever. But it just like, you can, and they have done this in little towns where it's like, we control reality. Yeah. But that ain't it. No. You can't just say everyone's a liar. Right. So that they're you can get your each stuff other. done on time. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Horrifying. In 1999, they're all found guilty. 
George Fries is sentenced to 40 years in prison. Eugene Vent is sentenced to 38 years. Marvin Roberts is sentenced to 33 years. And Kevin Peace is sentenced to 60 years in prison. Unbelievable. In 2008, after more than seven years of investigating the case, Brian O'Donohue, he's a former reporter for the Fairbanks Daily News Miner, who was a journalist professor at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, he publishes a series of articles in the newspaper that strongly suggests that the Fairbanks Four are innocent. The series draws on years of reporting by O'Donohue's students, which, like, what a fucking yes. incredible case. He's to, like, guess what? You're actually going to learn something because right. you're really going to do something so here. He takes a fucking textbook and tears it in half. He's <laughs> like, everyone, this shit, get rid of it. Everyone tear your book in half. You guys, you guys figure out reality. That's right. The students had looked into the case during a journalism class, mm -hmm. which is like, oh my God. Based on the articles, the Alaska Innocence Project starts reinvestigating the case. And in 2013, so in 1999 is when they were convicted. In 2013, after contacting dozens of witnesses, attorneys for the project filed a post-conviction motion on behalf of the defendants seeking a new trial. They claim that someone named William Holmes, he's a former drug dealer serving a life sentence in California for murder, and four of his friends are actually responsible for Hartman's murder. Um, this guy, William Holmes, according to the motion, admits that he was the driver of the car containing the men who killed Hartman. Oh, my God. Yeah. So they got that guy actually saying it. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. So state authorities said they remained confident that Pease, Vent, Roberts, and Freese were guilty, but agreed to reinvestigate the case based on the new evidence. Oh, thank you. Wow. So... Uh, on December 18th, 2015, the prosecution reaches an agreement with the attorneys for the defendants under which they have to. So here's what's fucking crazy. They're like, OK, th we admit that this doesn't look good for us. The only way they can get out of prison is if they sign something that says they waive any claims to compensation, meaning they can't <sighs> sue in the future. They all have to sign it. One of them is already out on parole and he has if he doesn't sign it, none of them get out. Oh so he's like, this is I'm dirty. fucked. Yeah. yeah. So they all sign this thing saying, yes, we promise we won't sue you, which just shows you how how much the city knows that they fucked up. Right. They you know, know they, this thing's coming. So they're just trying to protect. Right. Themselves. It's like admitting yeah. that. So they all sign this um, claim and all the convictions are vacated and the charges are dismissed. So um, Freese, Vent and Peace are then released. Roberts had already been released on parole. And in 2018, of course, all four men file a federal lawsuit challenging the agreement to waive compensation Great. so they can rightfully sue for a wrongful conviction. Beautiful. That lawsuit is dismissed on October 22nd, 2018. The one that when they're like, we want to get rid that, of that and it gets fucking dismissed. <sighs> But wait, Ugh. and here's what's going on right now. Okay. The Ninth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals reinstates the lawsuit in January of 2020, this fucking month. Yes. So that's why I've been reading so much about it. Okay. So they're like, sorry, dude, you can totally fucking. Yes. You can take it to court to potentially sue for that. Right. So after 18 years behind bars, Kevin Pease says that uh, at least their case has opened a lot of eyes to violations, civil, criminal, police misconduct, and that hopefully this story will help prevent a future exoneree or future wrongfully convicted person from having to take the deal that they took. Yes. Which is a fucking dirty deal. Right. While the four Fairbanks men are now free, the pursuit of justice for John Hartman has totally fallen by the wayside. John's father has died. His siblings have tried to move on with 
with their lives and the state can't really pursue it because as far as they're concerned, they had the right people all along. Which is kind of, there's so many shitty and horrifying elements to wrongful convictions in that way. But that part is especially evil because what they're saying is we don't have to actually find the killer because we've pinned it on these people and no, and shut up because we're done. Right. And we still think it's them. So if we're not going to, you know, with any meaningful, uh, you know, way, investigate this all over again because we don't think it's anyone else. So, of course, you're not going to like pay attention to the details. But we don't think that because we've decided not to think it, not because of what the evidence is telling right. us. That's what I hate. Yeah. Okay, here's another one. Okay. Right? So, that's... We're so basically... We're waiting to see if they are hopefully going to get um, compensated for being wrong, wrongfully convicted. And we also want to see the people who actually killed John Hartman get justice served. Yeah. So that's against them. <laughs> yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. No, that makes sense. Uh, wow. That's, that's a huge kind of like, it's, um, cause mostly we hear about, you know, missing and murdered indigenous women right. and what a humongous and totally barely looked into issue that is. Right. But this like that, it's just like, yeah, marginalized people. Yeah. This happens to them all the time. Yeah. Here's another story of that. This is the Dixmore five. So we had four, and now we have five. Now we have five. Um, I got info from the National Registry for Exonerations, a Chicago Tribune article by Steve Mills and Todd Lighty, and um, the Chicago Sun-Times. Dixmore, Illinois. Okay. It's a suburb about 30 minutes outside of Chicago, and it's completely shaken when on November 19th, 1991, a 14-year-old girl named Catrisa Matthews vanishes from a bus stop while on her way home from her grandmother's house. Mm. And she's just this young uh, middle school girl. Catrisa is missing for 20 days when her body is found on December 8th, 1991 in a field running along the I-57 in Dixmoor. She had been raped and she had been killed by a single gunshot from a twenty four caliber gun to her into her mouth. Ugh. It's awful. Ugh. State and local police had no significant leads in the case until 10 months later when someone tells police that he had seen Katrisa getting into a car with some local boys. So Jonathan Barr, Robert Taylor, and Robert Lee Veal, they're all 14 at the time. Shane Sharp and Jason Harden were 16. So some 14-year-olds and 16-year-olds are brought in. On October 29th, 1992, police bring in 14-year-old Robert Lee Veal for um, questioning. After more than five hours of interrogation without his parents or counsel, Veal signs a handwritten statement implicating himself, Harden, Taylor, Sharp, and Barr in the rape and murder. So it's very much parallel to the uh-huh. to the Fairbanks. It's these fucking confessions, these false confessions that I feel like people are finally realizing are are very easy to coerce, especially out of minors. You and know. after a long period of time. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. It's this the pattern is the same. Right, exactly. So later that same day, Robert Taylor also signs a statement, also outside the presence of his parents or counsel, implicating himself and all four others in the crime. So sure. it's not just one, it's two so far. Two days later, after more than twenty one hours in custody, Oof. Sharp also signs a handwritten statement implicating himself and the others. Like if out of five people, three of them confess to it falsely, you've got some 
big issues inside of your department. Well, and also just for that case, you have, there's so much work to do to go backwards out of that. Right. I mean, like, it's stressing me out. Yeah. I, I, a wrongful conviction, man. It is so upsetting. It's so stressful. It's, I think it's everyone's fear. Totally. I mean, it really is when 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 no one is with you, when no one is advising you, you yeah. have no, there's no one to help you. Yeah. And then the authorities that are there are hell bent on. They have their beliefs and they are not going to rest. And they right. are, you know, they're smart people who who've been doing this for a long time. And they, if they... Yeah, they something's telling them that it's you. They're yeah. not going to accept any other answer. In June 1994, while the five awaited trial, the state police crime lab tests the DNA from semen recovered from the scene. Um, they find that the profile identifies zero of the five teens, but actually comes from a lone male. Okay. A totally different lone male. Mm-hmm. The police and Cook County State's Attorney Office are like, let's not worry about that right now and proceed with the prosecution based on the three confessions, even though the confessions contradicted each other regarding facts about the case. So they don't even have to fucking line up. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No one has their story, story straight, which is a problem. Right. So Veal and Sharp plead guilty to first degree murder oh. and receive 20 year sentences with parole available after seven years because they pled guilty mm-hmm. um, in exchange and they do that in exchange for agreeing to testify against Hardin, Taylor, and Barr. So basically, they got the deal. Right. They, they were the, the first ones to accept this deal. Oof. You know, which is, I hate that too, where it's like, if you rat this other person out first, you get a better deal than they do for no fucking reason. It's it's dirty business. It is very dirty. Um, Harden and like, it's like, don't take someone, don't take someone to trial unless you have enough to prosecute them against, aside from one of the admitted you know, other participants saying they're involved. Does that make any sense? It does. I know it's not always like that. It's not always perfect. And this has probably been a way to get some people behind bars who totally deserve to be there. But you can't cheat. You can't cheat if you're the cops. You can't cheat if you're the authority. You can't do it that way. And that's the way the ideal version of the justice system was set up is that you it's innocent until proven guilty. And that's the upsetting thing to me is it feels like being a fan of true crime and reading these stories there's so many stories we hear where there's psycho white serial killers when they get brought to court there's one piece of evidence that's like a little janky and so suddenly the case is dismissed or or whatever we've heard those stories um, where it's like there wasn't enough evidence we couldn't prosecute him and then suddenly it's like we've got the one piece of evidence that basically we had control over and that's and that's going to get us through because these are people of color right so Hardin and Taylor are tried together and they receive 80 years in prison. Oh. Bars tried separately. He's convicted and sentenced to 85 years in prison. All of their appeals are denied, including a post-conviction request for additional DNA testing. In August 2009, Hardin, Taylor, and Barr's pro bono attorneys, Tara Thompson of the University of Chicago Exoneration Project um, and the Center on Wrongful Convictions of Youth, and a Chicago attorney, Jennifer Blagg, together with a New York-based Innocence Project, renewed the effort to obtain new DNA testing. Innocence Project! Cook County Circuit Court Judge Michelle Simmons ordered the testing. She's like, great, let's get some more DNA testing. But for more than a year, 
year, the Dixmore police claimed that they were unable to locate the uh, the evidence. They're like, we can't find it. We don't know where it is. So uh, they claim they can't find the evidence. And then Judge Simmons orders them to allow the defendant's attorney to inspect the department's evidence storage areas. They're like, amazing. Then here we fucking come. And they're like, oh, abracadabra. The police are like, we found the evidence. What a coincidence. So now these law enforcement people that were involved in this kind of cover up you feel mm-hmm. are getting muscled the way they muscled right. the the children that they had in custody. One of my most one of the most infuriating things to me is when evidence gets lost, whether it's not whether or not it's like purposeful, like this seems to be allegedly allegedly or allegedly. when there's like a, you know, the fire um, that destroys a monster. I mean, it drives me fucking crazy. Right. Because it's so much work to collect it. Yeah. It's so much work. And it. There's answers it, it there. It matters. It matters so much. Yeah. Um, so on in March 2011, the new testing fails again to link any of the teens to the crime. And instead, after the DNA profiles run through CODIS, it matches a sex offender named Willie Randolph. Wow. Who at the time of the crime, he's a, he's a 33-year-old sex offender. He lived in the victim's neighborhood and was on parole after serving a 20-year sentence for armed robbery. Jesus. I feel like when there's a, a sex crime, they look for the sex, they look into the sex offenders in the area first, right? That's kind of a thing. Not if you can pull in right. five teenagers that have no probably no money or like juice to yeah. def- get defended. Totally. Um, on November third, two thousand eleven, the state's attorney's office dismissed all charges against the defendants after they served. It was like ten to nineteen years each. They had already all served in prison, respectively, for a crime they hadn't committed. In twenty fourteen, the Illinois State Police agrees to pay forty million. Holy shit! The largest group settlement in the state at the time to the Dixmore Five. Yeah. Peter Newfield, the attorney representing one of the wrongfully convicted men, said, quote, what you have here in Cook County is an epidemic, an epidemic of false confessions of juveniles, primarily people of color. Mm-hmm. So in August 2016, more than five years after the DNA tests were completed, Ugh. which is insane. Very frustrating. Randolph is finally charged with murder, kidnapping, and the predatory sexual assault of Catrisa Matthews, Cook County State's attorney. This is insane. Anita Alvarez. So she had been forced to, uh, under public pressure to lift the convictions initially and to create a conviction integrity unit to save face, suggested that it was possible that someone had raped the victim after the exonerated boys had killed uh, killed her to account for the DNA. Let it like fucking go. Can't let it go. That this fucking sexual predator stumbled along after the Dixmore Five had killed her. And the, and he was also a necrophiliac. Yeah. That was her excuse. They Lady. all did it. Come on, guys. Yeah, she would not let it go. But she did offer, quote, sincere apologies to the men and their families. She says that the system did not protect them and victimize them in a way that can never possibly be repaired. No shit. But she argued that reforms have been implemented, quote, to ensure that no person is wrongfully convicted. Uh, let's hope. Let's hope. Also, there's a chance. Let, let's just try to be fair. Okay. <laughs> sometimes no. that she was told to say that uh-huh. in like that. Basically, you need to simultaneously oh. defend law enforcement while still giving. Right. Or for legal reasons, too. Yeah. Or for whatever. Or just kind of like you have to throw something out yeah. there that justifies 
the fact that we, you know, yeah. we did our best to destroy children's lives. Totally. At Randolph's trial, Catrice's mother, Teresa Matthews, poor, this poor fucking woman, she's went through all of their trials and in the Dixmore Five and now has to go through another trial. No. Yeah, and sit through this entire thing. Teresa Matthews, she sat up front saying, quote, I want to see his face. I thank God it's happening because I just want justice for my child. She had dreams. She wanted to be somebody in life. And that is the story of the Dixmore Five and the murder of Catrice Matthews. Wow. I know. Teresa must be an incredibly strong person. Absolutely. Because that also she has to be there to witness what's happening to these boys. Right. So she are, she already has the, the complete life destroying heartbreak of losing her daughter. Mm-hmm. And then because of that loss, these boys have this loss. And she thinks for years that they did it. They're behind bars and then suddenly has to get this, I'm sure, life altering news that that it's possible the wrong people are there when she probably believed firmly in her heart that they had done it and have to come, having to come terms with that. And all the trust. Uh, yeah. Uh, Jesus. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you. Those are, I'm so glad to know about both of those stories. Isn't that crazy? I've been reading about it. I mean, it's just bananas. Yeah. It's interesting uh, that you did basically a topical Mm-hmm. Because mine's topical too. Is it? Yes, it is. And that's why I had Jay call and ask you what yours was yeah. because I was afraid it would overlap. Wait, does this have to do with lions? <laughs> okay, lions? Nothing. Never mind. No. <laughs> you mean the live action Lion King that came out last year? <laughs> yes. I'm basically doing a live reading of this script right. and I'm singing all the songs. Okay. No, I'm going to cover the very uh, recently re emerging case of the pillowcase rapist. Of Southern Florida. Ooh. Have you heard oh, anything yeah, about this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, this is a good one. DNA. DNA. <laughs> it's all DNA, yes. baby. And it was suggested by Vanessa. Her Twitter handle is at Vanessa underline Kelly. And she was like, are you seeing this? Do you see what I see? Right. We love those. Vanessa's are very, <clears throat> um, what are they? Humble. I don't know. I'm making that up. <laughs> they're humble and they're usually Scorpios. Yeah. Um, so thanks, Vanessa. What's cool about this also kind of like parallel, the majority of the information in what I'm about to read you, but also in everything I looked up, the source was always, always came back to this Miami Herald reporter of the time in the eighties named Edna Buchanan. Cool. She basically, she was the crime beat reporter for the Miami Herald in the eighties and she got on this case and was all about it. And she eventually won a Pulitzer for her reporting for the, for the crime beat at, at the Miami Herald. It's not enough Edna's anymore. Not enough Edna's. And also, because I was thinking, I had her in my mind, like she was from the 40s. I'm like, but it's the 80s. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the 80s had the 40s comeback thing. I guess it did. You know, shoulder pads and stuff. Edna, she did like that grandma drag that I love so much in the 80s, where you just get like an old vintage house dress and some big clompy shoes. Hi, it's me. Yeah. Hi. Hi. This is my style. I'm Edna. I'm your grandma. (laughs) So anyway, Edna, kick-ass reporter... Essentially, every I was trying to make this go chronologically, mm-hmm. but every quote I had and every piece of information was like it would all come back to the same article. Okay, so I will. So the majority of this is Edna Buchanan's reporting. Okay, Edna Buchanan's reporting. Um, but I, there's also information from the New York Times, Washington Post, AP News, and CNN because it is a what we might call breaking news yeah. story. Reanimated. Yes, that's right. Okay, so. Sometime in 1978, maybe 1979, it's still vague, but a woman named Jill Trent 
who's in her mid twenties. She lives in a duplex in West Palm, Florida, and she wakes up one night. There's an intruder in her apartment, mm. and he wraps her head in a pillowcase. Mm. He threatens her with a sharp object that she can't see. Um, he very calmly and quietly tells her to shut up, which I find calm, v- yeah, very disturbing. Totally. He rapes her and then he leaves, mm. and she of course reports the crime to the police. They start an investigation, but. Of course, she can't tell them what he looked like. And he barely spoke. And he was very fastidious about not leaving any trace behind. Wow. So they had nothing. And meanwhile, every time Jill goes back home to her apartment, she relives it. And of course, it's just so much trauma. Uh, So she decides to move in with her sister for a while. Mm -hmm. God bless sisters. Mm -hmm. And eventually she starts to get back on her feet. But of course, every time the investigators call with like an update or a question, she's right back in. She eventually decides to move to Washington State and she basically just avoids any criminal news reports that come out of Florida. Sure. And no arrest is ever made in her case and she basically all but gives up hope that anything will Mm. until last week. Am I right? Jill told the Miami Herald. I felt like somebody punched me right in the chest. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't talk. My husband thought I was having a heart attack. I finally got the words out. I think that's him. Oh, my God. And it brought it all back. You'd think after 40 years it'd be gone, but it's not. Of course it's not. I have chills. So Jill's attack would end up being the first in a series of horrifying rapes that would continue through the 80s and into the 90s by an attacker who was so mysterious and there was so little information about him that everyone just called him the pillowcase rapist. Okay. That's such a long period of time to be active. There's a lot of parallels in this story to Golden State Killer. Yeah. It's, it's a same feeling. And, uh, you can all go see his, there's video of him uh, in his first Really? Um, tr- uh, like the preliminary trial. Uh-huh. And he's just an old, he looks a lot like Joseph D'Angelo, but he's not playing the, he's feeble not playing the man. old feeble no. man card. Bullshit. He is wearing a bulletproof vest though. Oh, is he scared? Uh, oh. I think they have to put it oh. on people like that because it's high profile yeah. and people are fucking pissed. Like people pay attention. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, we're back. In the 80s. Okay. It's May 1st, 1981. An intruder breaks into the home of a 24-year-old secretary at the, I'm guessing it's pronounced Elysian mm-hmm. or Alysian. But who knows what an apartment complex is pronounced like in 1981? <laughs> That's true. I couldn't find the d- the database. They had some wild apartment names back then. <laughs> in Florida? Are you kidding me? <laughs> so she lives at this apartment complex in Doral. <laughs> I didn't look the name of the pronunciation. <laughs> I didn't look right. that one up either. Uh, it's just west of Miami. Okay. Gotta be Doral. It must be. <laughs> okay. So this attacker covers this woman's face with a pillowcase mm-hmm. and rapes her. She can't give the police a clear description of him. There's almost no evidence from the scene. And there will be four more rapes mm. in the same apartment building over the next year. No. That's all the with the same MO. That's the free. Like, that is some targeted, terrifying shit. Yes. This man is close by and he is, is stalking and planning and it's horrifying. You just hope that, like, after one of these incidents... There'd be more security at this apartment building. Yeah. Or after the third one. Right. I mean, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, but it does go to this man was 
incredibly yeah. he planned they the predator later say we, they think he's spending 10 to 12 hours a day like surveilling and stalking Holy these women shit. it's like his full-time job yeah so okay. okay then a few days before christmas um a year later a woman is wrapping gifts in her fort lauderdale home when an intruder appears he holds a knife to her back he wraps her head in a pillowcase and he rapes her mm. In the middle of this attack, her roommate comes home, mm. sees what's happening, grabs a pair of scissors, and chases him off. Yay! Yes. But, of course, they re- report the incident to the police, but neither are able to give a good description of the man. Yeah. They couldn't see him. All these stories are very similar. Yeah. In July, and that woman... Uh, chooses to the first two choose to remain anonymous Mm -hmm. in july of 1983 a 20 year old art student named marianne ritter is attacked in her coconut grove apartment an intruder breaks in through an opening underneath a window Mm -hmm. um he grabs her forces her into the bathroom rapes her at knife point and this time his face is wrapped in the pillowcase horrifying she has a roommate marianne has a roommate but her roommate slept through the entire attack which is horrible for everybody totally horrible and like the victims before her she's unable to provide a description yeah um on december of his face i should say yeah on december 28th 1983 a 25 year old woman identified as just ev the initials ev um she's in her miami day department when the pillowcase rapist breaks in when she screams, he puts a hand over her mouth, knocks her to the ground. He then stabs her in the abdomen with what they believed was an ice pick. Oh. Yeah. And he threatens to kill her if she doesn't stop screaming. So she does. He forces her into the bedroom. He covers her face with a blanket and then a pillow and rapes her. When she tells him she can't breathe, he quietly tells her to shut up. <sighs> it's one of the only things he says to his victims. Creepy. Okay, so by February of 1985, authorities realize they have a serial rapist uh, and a very dangerous one on their hands. They're nowhere close to catching him. Uh, he doesn't leave evidence. They can't, you know, no one can describe him. Mm-hmm. So they set up a task force of 50 investigators, and it's headed by a man named Detective Dave Simmons. So... And at the time, Dave Simmons is 35. So Simmons and his team hold a press conference to go public with everything that they know. And uh, basically, they say this intruder, this rapist is targeting young professional women in their 20s or 30s who uh, usually are single. Most of them have lived alone and in condos, townhouses mm-hmm. and apartments. He stalks them beforehand as the, the behavior reflects of him knowing about them and that they will be alone if they do have roommates. Right. Um, and he finds their way in usually through an unlocked door or window usually ties them covers either their face his face or both with a pillowcase or a piece of material and then threatens them with a sharp object that's so scary to know that's going on in your town it's so violent uh. it's so yeah it's so horrifying okay so now we uh miami herald reporter edna buchanan she covers this hunt for the rapist mm-hmm. with what is referred to as a quote a particular tenacity yeah girl um she's good at what she does mm. and then she's like yeah this is i'm assuming she's yeah. like this is what i'm in this for yeah so she writes an article covering this press conference that the police hold on february 24th 1985 about this case because basically the police were trying you know basically said we have to go to the public and yeah. ask for their help because 
we this just keeps happening. We can't let it continue this yeah. way. So they hold a very comprehensive press conference. And so I'm going to read you the article that Edna wrote. Like basically from attending that press conference. It's uh, police ask for help in finding pillowcase rapist. After nearly four years of investigation, Metro Dade police went public Saturday with their most frustrating case, the pillowcase rapist. Since 1981, the pillowcase rapist, a young, athletic, white American, has stalked career women in upper middle class apartment complexes from South Miami to Deerfield Beach. He's raped at least 39 women. Holy Fucking shit. So by the time police go public, because yeah. clearly they're just pressed, this is how many women have been raped, at <sighs> least, but probably more. Yeah. Edna wrote that. The latest one was Tuesday, yet police can find no one who has seen his face after 39 wow. uh, incidences. It's methodical. Always, it's methodical. It is. It's psychotic. Yeah. Police can find no one who's seen his face. It's always covered, often with a towel, a hood. Uh, or even his own T-shirt. He's not invisible, Detective Sergeant Christine Eckroll said, but he might as well be. Mm. Among his victims are school teachers, nurses, airline attendants, an artist, a model, an engineer, a health spa instructor, insurance executive, publicist, and student. They all range from age 17 to 43. All are slender and attractive. Only one lives in a single-family house. All others live in apartments, townhouses, or condos. On several occasions, the rapist has returned to the home of the victim weeks later. Uh, almost always, he enters the victim's apartment through an unlocked sliding glass door or open window. As many as a 100 detectives at a time have been assigned to the case. The investigation has cost taxpayers hundreds of thousands of dollars and police thousands of hours. The crimes has sparked, and this is an indication of the year that we're in, Uh an index card list of nearly 300 suspects, all of whom, this is pre-computers, all of whom have been eliminated as possibilities. So they had to investigate, you know, interview Uh and then dismiss 300 suspects. Wow. None of that is in the article. Elaborate, elaborate surveillance in which police moved victims out of their apartments, replacing them with police women who mm. physically resemble the rapist targets. Wow. Hundreds of strategy sessions among law enforcement agencies in Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach counties. Civic condo and crime watch meetings with warnings to thousands of tenants in large apartment complexes. Half a dozen civil lawsuits by outraged victims suing their landlords for lack of security. Mm. The use of state and FBI resources to no avail. Police have established certain physical facts about the rapist. His shoe size is 10 and a half. His blood type is common. It's O, but has rare and identifiable subgrouping characteristic found only in 1% of the population. Secreter. He's a screeter. And also, that's like, this is the pre-DNA thing where they're like, yeah. oh, wait, we found a subgroup. Like, right. That's, that's all they that's have. All you got. Sexually, he frequently is unable to maintain an erection. He is probably somewhere between his mid-20s and early 30s, white American with no accent. He is five foot eight to 11 inches tall, about 170 pounds with a slim, muscular build and mm-hmm. fair skin. 
He often is well tanned. His hair is dirty blonde or medium brown. He's clean and neat and wears jeans, a t-shirt, and sneakers. His hands are not rough or calloused. I feel as though I know him, Metro Sergeant David Simmons, chief investigator in the case, says he is the cleverest rapist I've ever investigated and definitely the most prolific in Dade County history. Wow. Police have revisited the 39 victims they know about and they have encouraged them to move. Yeah. Quote, we're telling them there's a possibility he'll be back, Simmons says. Five weeks after one rape, he returned to the victim's apartment. She was not there. He masturbated on her lingerie. (gasps) Laboratory tests established the identification, as have tests for the 38 other victims. When the same victim took a hot shower one day three weeks later, the steam made visible an obscene message the rapist had scrawled with his fingertip on her bathroom mirror. Oh, Nightmare. Uh huh. And Edge- on Edgewater Drive in Coral Gables, he raped a woman in a fashionable high-rise apartment. He returned four weeks later and raped her neighbor one door away. What the fuck? A newly hired security guard saw the second victim park her car and walk into the building. From a distance, he saw the rapist follow her, walking about fifty feet behind. The man looked ordinary. Oh, like he saw his face. He saw his face, but from 50 feet. Oh. The first reported rape occurred May 1st, 1981, and at the Elysian Lakes Apartments. And this, so this is clearly before they knew right. about the real first one. Right. Uh, at 4920 Northwest 79th Avenue. So was the second, the third, the fourth, and the fifth. The next summer, the crimes began to occur in Coconut Grove, then Broward County, and then back to Dade. There have also been cases in North Miami, Miami Lakes, Fountain Blue Park, Davie, Taramac, Plantation, Papano Beach, Deerfield Beach, and Oakland Park. The most recent took place last Tuesday, February 19th, at a South Miami apartment complex near Southwest 75th Street and 59th Avenue. The victim stepped across the hall to visit briefly with a woman neighbor. She did not lock her door. Mm. She rem- she returned 10 minutes later to watch Hollywood Wives on TV at 9 p.m. Sure. Details. The rapist was waiting, hiding inside a walk-in closet in her apartment. If that right there is not the fucking yeah. specific nightmare everybody has, especially young women who yeah. live alone. I mean... It's also because, like, there was a 10-minute window and he knew... How did he know her door was unlocked in that 10-minute window? He is stalking yeah. the people he's already victimized. Right. So this is next-level monster shit. Oh, how terrifying. And going back... Not getting caught and going yeah. back yeah. is such a nutso thing. Totally. He was waiting inside the walk-in apartment um, closet. Quote, All she saw was a dark shadow rush toward her from behind and something pink over her head, Simmons said. He'd covered her face with a blush-colored towel. Police describe his general pattern. A few years ago, he would awaken his victim before dawn by placing a pillow over her face. Now he arrives earlier in the evening, assaulting women who are still awake. Oh, God. Quote, he's taking more chances, Simmons says. He's becoming bolder, of course, as we know. That's how it always goes. He carries an ice pick or a knife and cuts telephone cords. Oh, God. One Once he left the victim's telephone in her refrigerator. He often presses his knife to the throats or bodies of the victim, sometimes inflicting minor wounds. Sometimes he slashes off undergarments. He says little to his victims and warns them constantly, speaking softly in low tones to shut up. Sometimes he moves the victim from room to room and spins her around to disorient her. Oh, 
Not only is he careful to hide his own face, he always covers the victim's faces with pillowcases, pillows, blankets, bed linens, or other items. He constantly warns victims not to look at him. Simmons has a theory about that. Quote, I have a feeling that maybe something about his face is unusual, a scar, a physical deformity hmm. of some kind, something highly distinctive. Hmm. Okay, so sorry to read you an entire article, but as I was trying to write this, yeah. I started realizing, once I read this article, that all the other articles I was reading yeah. and trying to make this chronological, yeah. it was all just Edna's article. Right. So I was like, let's just read Edna's article yeah. and get it all said. Totally. She nailed it. I mean, it's yeah. so comprehensive. Yeah. And then can you imagine being a woman in the 80s in that the Miami area no. and picking up your newspaper in the morning and reading what I just read? No, that's horrifying. And I mean, there's so many women. You must know someone who, you know, know someone who knows someone who was a victim. Right. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, okay, so... After this press conference, after these, you know, obviously the um, the articles start getting written, people start finding out about it, thousands of tips start pouring in. Okay. So many, in fact, that in May of the same year, IBM donates computer equipment to help the investigators cross-reference thousands wow. of clues. Wow, good on you, IBM. So this is like, uh, I think I said 1985. Mm-hmm. Which the, is like the computer is humongous. They were like, we're donating it, but you have to come down to our facility to right. use it. You need an extra room. Yeah. Okay. So in January of 1986, the pillowcase rapist changes his MO. Hmm. And I think it's probably because the coverage and right. the story getting out. Right. So specific too. Yeah. And, and clearly he's smart and paying attention to yeah. everything. So he usually targets younger women, but this time he breaks into the home of a 69 year old woman and makes her his next victim. <sighs> Not only that, but the usually meticulous criminal also fails to clean up properly and police recover a semen sample from the crime scene. An analysis of the semen sample shows that the attacker's blood type is unique, the type O with a subgrouping found in just 1% of the population, mm -hmm. which is not enough to identify him outright, but... It's something that they will have. Yeah. See that that was just a little piece of Edna's article. Yeah. That got right. <laughs> that got totally. repurposed into the rest of the story. Totally. Okay. So then on February eleventh, nineteen eighty six, a thirty six year old woman encounters the intruder in her home. He's got a pillowcase over his head as he attacks her. Mm. It reminds me of that fucking movie, The Strangers. Yeah. Totally. It's a pillowcase on the head. Maybe I don't know what that How is. Do you even see though. If you have a pillowcase on your head. I don't. No, he must have cut on eyes. It's horrible. But this time, again, he's less careful. So he's, it's escalating and he's getting out of control. Yeah. So, and this woman, this 36 year old woman is genius because she tells him and insists to him that she's blind as a bat, that she can't mm. see anything without her glasses that are sitting on her bedside table. So he believes her and takes the pillowcase off his own head. Shut up. And holds a knife to her throat. He does rape her, but she was lying. She can see him perfectly. How in a moment of terror and panic she was able to be so clear-headed is inc incredible. Because I think the thing that maybe we don't talk about and maybe a lot of true crime journalists don't talk about because maybe not everybody has been in this horrifying situation yeah. is there is a bolt, a lightning bolt of strength that yeah. must come out of you yeah. in these situations. I bet things get super clear yeah. and you are looking for ways to survive. Well, that's, that's 
I was going to say that it's out of all of those cases, and there's so many, there aren't any women who were able to escape him means that this is a very scary, intimidating person that they didn't feel safe trying to escape. No. So that says so much about him and how terrifying he is. Yeah. And it's so incredible that she was able to to do that. It's genius. And to do it convincingly. Because it's like, it's hard to lie at 7-Eleven. Totally. You know what I mean? And she, she... she did it. She yeah. she nailed it. Yeah. So, armed with the most detailed description of the attacker ever, <sighs> this woman describes his face to police. They quickly issue a police sketch. The task force distributes one million flyers I'm, of this sketch. I'm looking it up right now. They even commission a sculptor named Tony Lopez to create a clay bust of his head. Oh, my God. Tony Lopez is like... I got this. This will be free. It's nice. my, it's my pleasure to sculpt this piece of shit's head on the house. Um, and yeah, there's good pictures of both yeah. the head sculpture and the, um, flyer that went around. He basically looks like anybody. Yeah. Yeah. But if you knew him, you would be like, that looks like so and so. Right. Local and national news outlets broadcast the sketch and the sculpture. Nothing oh comes my of it. God so frustrating that must have been heartbreaking for all those that entire task force everybody involved it's just like we're so close yeah a month later on march 14th 1986 an 82 year old woman (sighs) awakes at roughly 5 30 in the morning to a man standing over her bed with a pillowcase covering his face man you get through all the shit in life and you fucking served your time it's to wake up at 82 to that. It's all the worst, but this is kind of depravity, <sighs> victim bre- depravity stuff that is totally. just like, it's off the charts. Totally. His eyes are showing in this uh, situation. Okay. After the attack, <laughs> this is fucking rad. She tears the metal dish towel rack off the kitchen wall and chases him out through the back door of Girl. her house. She is fucking pissed oh. in that, probably that very same way of, I didn't fucking live 82 years no. from this bullshit. Oh my god. She is the 45th and final recorded victim in this rape crime spree. Wow. He makes off with her wedding band, but leaves a bizarre set of clues behind. Hmm. A pair of women's red bikini-style underwear, a pair of little girls' ruffled red nylon panties. What? Disgusting. A cream-colored woman's sleeveless undershirt, navy blue leather purse with two crumpled department store bags inside of it, and an unidentified item of men's clothing. He leaves all of that behind. He brought that all with him? Yes. And leaves it behind when he barely right. ever left anything. So well, she chased him out. She chased him out. He didn't have time to get his creepy trinkets. <laughs> weird bullshit. But uh, the police actually consult a Miami psychologist, a man named William R. Samick. He theorizes that he left them behind um, because he's, quote, setting himself up to be caught. Oh. So it might be that that he's like, can't do it anymore. Consciously, like, yeah. Yeah. So after the February 1986 rape of the 45th reported victim who ripped the fucking paper towel shit off the wall was like, I will kill you. The attacks suddenly stop. On April 3rd, 1987, the task force is officially disbanded and this shocking serial rape case goes cold. Until... Oh my God. 
32 years later, September 2019, the police respond to a domestic disturbance call where a woman has reported that her boyfriend, 29-year-old Robert J. Kohler, threatened her, broke her flower pots outside of her home, and tried to break into her house through a window. Hmm. He's arrested. He's charged with attempted burglary, criminal mischief, and domestic violence. And he's 29. He's 29, yeah. Okay. Because the charges brought against him are felonies, police are required to take a DNA sample and enter it into CODIS. Prosecutors end up dismissing the case. But a little over two weeks ago, on January 13th, 2020, Holy shit. that DNA sample of Robert Kohler's reveals a familial match to a cold case, the rape of E.V. from December 28th, 1983. Oh, my God. So investigators there's there's a cold case uh squad i will call them yeah. but i don't know how many people are on it but there are cold case investigators that immediately get it pick it up start looking into it they learned that kohler's 60 year old father <gasps> robert kohler senior is a registered sex offender who pled guilty to rape charges in palm beach county in 1991 so mm. it turns out so i looked it up Palm Beach County is just about two hours away from Miami. So it's far enough away that they didn't pick it up on their... There, it wasn't on their register. Exactly. Okay. That the the police there weren't as familiar as like Miami metro area or Miami Dade. I don't know. I don't want to act like I know. Okay. Turns out Robert Kohler Sr. was arrested for breaking into a woman's home in the middle of the night, covering up her face. And raping her. No. Mm-hmm. Convicts were not required to give DNA samples in the 90s right. like they are today. Robert Kohler Sr. walked away from that rape charge with probation. No. And and with no DNA left behind. No, 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 no. Probation. Apparently, none of the investigators in the Palm Beach County in Palm Beach County in the 90s recognized the pillowcase rapist MO. Right. Now I will say this. When I Googled the pillowcase rapist, more than one came up. Okay. So we do have to remember that this is a thing that happens horrifyingly a lot. Yeah. So we can't be like, what? Why didn't they memorize yeah. that when it's like, I bet you they had their own version. And there was no like database where you could be like put in the MO and you can just type in like uses a pillowcase covers the f- like, hopefully today there are stuff like that. Yes, totally. Got out. Uh, so, and a lot of times when we talk about cases like this, they're like from the eighties where it's like, it's the detective that, what was that one? Was it, um, the man from the man in the window mm-hmm. where I can't remember which detective, one of the early golden state killer, original detectives, one of them just walked around and asked people, Hey, yeah. do you have a, like would basically make conversation with other detectives right? just to see what they had yeah. to compare just to kind of keep the conversation going yeah. about it. I mean, it takes a lot of extra does. work, does. I think, and stuff like this. Yeah. Anyway, not to be overly defensive. Do it. Sometimes we must. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> the way I wrote this was apparently none of these investigators in Palm Beach County recognized the MO or made the connection to the pillowcase rapist series. But this cold case team sure did. Mm. Um, so they place Robert Kohler Sr. under surveillance. Investigators follow him to a grocery store, manage to pull his DNA mm. off the shopping cart he used and a door handle he pulled. It's amazing these days, like that out of just fingerprints, you can get DNA. Yes. Incredible. Yeah. Just the 
Touch, touch DNA. I love when they, when a guy who smokes a cigarette flicks the yeah. butt and they like walk up three minutes later yeah. and with some tweezers. Oh, when police run those DNA samples, they get a preliminary match to the 1983 rape of the victim identified as EV. They now have enough solid evidence for an arrest warrant. So on Saturday, January 18th. What? What's that? 11 days ago? What day is it? 10 days? Yeah, 11 days Seven. ago. Police arrive at Robert Kohler Sr.'s home in Palm Bay, Florida, and arrest him. They also secure a search warrant to look through his house. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. They find several safes that contain jewelry and trinkets Mm -mm. that police believe are souvenirs from the rape series in the 80s. Yeah, they are. But more disturbing than that, they find an excavated area underneath Kohler's house, which they have reason to suspect was being built as a dungeon for future victims. Shut up. Uh, uh-huh. holy shit. It's, it's like, it's, it's, you can say it took too long. It's too late. But then in this case, it's just fucking in time. Right. So now police are able to take better DNA sample because Kohler is in custody. Yeah. And so they take that sample and they entered into CODIS and results come back linking him to 24 more unsolved rape cases from the eighties. Holy shit. So. Uh, Thursday, January 23rd, uh, he appeared in court for his initial hearing. He's only been charged with uh, the first rape he was tied to with DNA evidence, uh-huh. which is the one of EVs that occurred on December 28th. But more charges could be added as this evidence is being gathered because this literally is like breaking right now. Yeah. And in fairness, we need to say that Robert Kohler told the judge at this hearing that he is not guilty, but it's not his official plea because it wasn't the um, it wasn't that trial. Okay. It wasn't the time. And so um, his official plea has not yet been entered. Okay. Uh, he was denied bond. Good. Uh- yeah. And Detective Dave Simmons, who is now retired, has kept in touch with some of the victims since his days on the task force. Um, the Miami Herald, of course, interviewed him to ask how he felt when he heard the news of this DNA match and the arrest. And he said, quote, I felt absolutely thrilled for the victims that we could finally tell them the man was caught, that the cold case squad continued working after I retired. Gets me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the case has haunted me over the years, and a lot of them gave up hope. Mm. Of course, they went and talked to Edna Buchanan yeah. uh, about it. She was elated to hear there was an arrest, and she wondered if it would prompt more victims to come forward. Mm. Quote, I, w- I just wish it was years and years earlier. Back then, so many women would not report a rape because of the way they were treated. Yeah. So um, that's a very important part of this because they don't know how many victims the pillowcase rapist had. And they're just basically starting to dig into the like size and breadth of this of this case. Crazy. And so uh, there's a woman named Shara Kazovitz, I think. There's a couple Z's in there. It's a very intimidating last name. But she's a licensed clinical social worker at Jackson Memorial Hospital's Roxy Bolton Rape Treatment Center. And she told um, the Miami Herald, quote, one of the ways people avoid is not reading the news or social media. Like Jill that I talked about at the very beginning. Yeah. And that can bring back a lot of feelings and a lot of people don't get help until years later. They avoid it and then something will trigger them and all the feelings come back. Mm-hmm. So she stressed that r- the rape treatment center that she works for, which is the Roxy Bolton Rape Treatment Center in Miami, um, 
It offers free counseling and support groups for victims, even ones from decades ago. And she said, she told the newspaper, it's never too late to get support. And so at the end of one of their articles, the Miami Herald wrote, quote, as victims grapple with decades old memories, Miami-Dade prosecutors have now set up a hotline for them to call. What's this, an eight? (laughs) I just love that they're, oh, you're crying. They still get to fucking report their fucking rape from 40 years. Thank God. Man, fuck statute limitations for sexual assault. I mean, everyone's getting hip to the fact that these crimes matter. Yeah. They're real. They're awful. There's no statute limitations on your trauma. No. It's forever. It's always valid. Yeah. It needs to be worked through. Yeah. So here's the hotline for Miami-Dade prosecutors. It's 305-547-0441. Why is reading numbers getting me? It's so weird. (laughs) 305-547-0441. State Attorney Catherine Fernandez-Rundle said prosecutors will try to file charges in cases in which there is DNA evidence and the victim's still available to testify. The Roxy, and just for people, because there may be people listening to this who realize that this horrible event that happened in their life is connected to this case. That's right. a possibility. Yeah. So just so you know, the Roxy Bolton Rape Treatment Center is the only comprehensive rape treatment center in Miami-Dade County and one of the few rape treatment centers nationwide to provide an all-inclusive approach to the care to the care and treatment of victims of sexual assault over the age of 12. So there's really good resources yeah. for the women of Southern Florida, which is a very heartening thing to know yeah. because as this case is breaking and as this case kind of really gets delved into, mm-hmm. just like Golden State Killer, I think that, you know, lots of things are going to be discovered and lots of people are going to... I don't know. Who knows yeah. what's going to happen? Yeah. But but it's very nice to know these there's resources there that are yeah. that are great. Yeah. And that's the breaking cold case story of the fucking pillowcase rapist. That is incredible. Great job. Thank you. That's why I, I understand why you made Jay ask me. <laughs> I was doing, like, how annoying would that be? We can't. You're like, and now I go first. <laughs> pillowcase <laughs> rapist. Wow. I know. Oh, you know, I love cold cases being solved so much. It's so it's. One of the good things that's happening. It's really good. Yeah. It's happening. Guys, and remember, old trauma deserves to be (sighs) heard. Heard and taken care of and, you know, treated as well. So no matter how you think like, oh, I should be over this by now and it's been too long. And, you know, that's trauma doesn't have a time limit and trauma lives in places and buries itself until years and years later and, you know, comes out in weird manifestations and, you know, you can't do it wrong. Right. It's going to be hard and messy. Yeah. But you can't do it wrong. And there are people who know how to help you. Right. And, you know, just from what the, the, what I read, it's not like I know so much about it, but it's just so cool that that rape treatment center really seems they're, they're all about, um, the the full comprehensive care yeah so it's not just like let's get this evidence and let's get your report it's really it really seems like there's such good support systems in place yeah which is you know it's really nice to be able to say that yeah every once in a while in one of these fucking stories totally yeah great job thank you (sighs) 
emotional episode journeys what's it's the weirdest thing reading a phone number (laughs) yeah but i think it was just like that just that idea that it's an it's like a offering to to victims yeah and they're respecting it they're just they're basically saying we want to hear from you we want to know what this really is as opposed to some of the stories we read where it's just like uh yeah that's not convenient or yeah not. or in or, 1991 when he gets parole for a sexual assault um yeah. wow okay yeah. well you, i feel like my fucking hooray isn't good enough <laughs> i mean i think we always feel that way it's hard to it's hard to take a left turn and go like here's a valid yeah. thing my fucking hooray is that i just took the news app off my phone <laughs> that's good oh my god i was going down this constant rabbit hole and I want to stay informed. And so I do find other ways of reading the news and everything and staying up on current events. But that news app that I would constantly refresh and get so many articles that had nothing to do with either news or me taking that off has been a, a huge anxiety reducer for me. I bet. That's you know? very smart. Uh, it's like there's we've all it's a very recent thing that we all suddenly started believing that we have to know what's going on right. all the time. Right. It's not true. Yeah. For years, millennia, most people had no fucking clue what was going on. Right. You know now, what's going on in your family and your town. Yeah. And that was it. And if someone could, like came up to you and punched you in the arm at the grocery store, that would be a thing. But yeah. So good. That's very nice. Yeah. What's yours? Um, I think mine needs to be, my dad has came down to visit. Jim! And Big we, Jim. we had a real fun dinner last night, mm-hmm. me and you and Vince and Jim. Mm-hmm. But I was just kind of in my house with him today. And we, I, I mean, I love my dad. My dad's the greatest. Yeah. But I couldn't stop thinking about how fun he is to talk to. Yeah. He loves to tell stories. He's fucking hilarious. Yes. His references are like of the moment. Yeah. He's interested in other people. He's interested in like learning yeah. about what's going on. I love hanging out with him. He was on a, on our drive to dinner. We had to take a, like a conference call. And I was like, sorry, you just have to listen to yeah. this. And he, I, when we got, when I, we got off the phone, I was like, sorry, I, I know that's kind of irritating. And he was like, are you kidding me? I love this. It's fascinating. <laughs> you guys are so, you're doing big business and you're so smart. And that, you know, he was stoked about it and it was just like I had a a wave of deep gratitude that I think I rarely have because I'm very spoiled you know I thought everyone's parents were like that growing up where it's like a dad that my dad when my sister and I were obsessed with the outsiders when we read it when we were 12 Mm -hmm. the S.E. Hinton book he took it and read it after us and then called me pony boy and my sister soda pop like he he want he wants to be in the world involved in your life yeah and as like an 80 year old white man these days he's kind of a a, a lone (laughs) he's a lone wolf a little bit liberal and everything liberal and and more like you know he's really mad about what's happening what's happening around him what's happening to people his age yeah the way he's seeing people kind of fall for bullshit anyway hooray for jim i guess is is my thing i feel like i have kind of finally understand how much i lucked out in the in the dad lottery that's awesome i love that yeah i like i like hanging out with him a lot 
You guys are so, I always loop you and Vince and where I'm like, I don't want to get dinner because my dad, he <laughs> could hang out with it. Vince forever. <laughs> it's like their long lost best friend. Totally. It's hilarious. Totally. Oh, it's so great. <laughs> Yay. Um, also, he really supported you stopping dry January. <laughs> Oh, why'd you do that? (laughs) Georgia goes, Georgia goes, I I stopped drinking for the month of January. He goes, why the hell would you do that? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. that's how it is in my family. Mine too. I love it. Yeah. Um, Rad, what's your fucking right? Let us know. Uh, Yeah. Let us know what yours is. That's a great idea. On Instagram, let's start doing a comment on what your fucking right is. I'd love to hear other people's fucking hurrays. Yeah. And we can read a couple other people's and then do Ooh, our own. That's a good idea. And we can steal other people's yeah. hurrays and, and then be like, I don't know what you mean. I This has been mine the whole time. This is mine. My, my puppy. What? You don't have a puppy. <laughs> what? Um... And my favorite murder on Instagram and what is it? My favorite murder on Twitter and my favorite murder.com. I couldn't get my favorite murder <laughs> when I set up the Twitter account. <laughs> we didn't think it'd be a big deal. I honestly didn't think it would ever come up. I was just like, yeah, you want me to start a social media? That's Remember fine. when I, when I was doing shirts and I got my favorite murder shirts.com <laughs> because I just didn't think it'd be more than shirts. Right. We just do some shirts. Why would it be? Uh, thanks for listening. You guys are the best thanks for letting us do more than shirts that's with right. merch um that's right and of course you can find all of our official merch on my favorite dot org no dot edu <laughs> no what is it calm <laughs> dot c-a-l-m mm. and stay sexy and don't get murdered goodbye. goodbye elvis do you want a cookie